This is episode number six of Perpetrator. Mr. Cool and The Rock. Listener warning. Some graphic descriptions of violence are contained in this podcast. It's December 1985, and I've just graduated from the police academy. I've been assigned to Neighborhood Stabilization Unit Number 2, commonly referred to as NSU-2. The NSUs are training units for the rookie cops. NSU-2 covers the 9th Precinct, specifically the Alphabet City section of Manhattan, which borders on the East Village and the Lower East Side. There are around three dozen cops working in each group, and we are supervised by Sergeant Gary Wexler. We are also privileged to have four experienced training detectives, Eddie Cowan and Danny Klein, who are former 9th Precinct cops, and George Morlow and Bobby Reed, previously 6th Precinct cops. Sergeant Wexler handles all the supervisory responsibilities. Most of the assignments are footposts in the Alphabet City section. Alphabet City is a neighborhood that comprises Houston Street on the south side and 14th Street on the north, or uptown side, of the 9th Precinct. Avenues A, B, C, and D are the cross streets that run between. Unfortunately, for all the hard-working, decent residents of this area, the neighborhood is plagued by high crime and is considered the open-air drug supermarket of New York City. I'm assigned to the footpost, or beat as it is known in cop lingo, on 11th Street, between Avenue B and Avenue C. I'm working a 4 by 12 shift, and around three hours into my shift, it's getting cold out, and it's dark, and it's also a little deserted, on the corner of Avenue B. Just then, a night precinct patrol car pulls up to me, and two cops who look like they have time on the job start talking to me. They say, Hey, is this your first day? Yes, it is. You know whose post this was, right? I am confused, and they say, This was our friends, Greg and Rocco's post. As I realize who they are talking about, an uneasy feeling comes over me. Hey, if you need anything, call us. We are in Sector Adam. As they drive away, I'm thinking, I hope that I don't need to call them. But within an hour, I hear the loud sound of glass breaking. And there it is again. Holy crap, they are throwing 40-ounce empty beer bottles off the roof at me. That one landed around five feet away. I call a 1085 or officer needs backup, and several patrol cars arrive. I tell them what happened, and we all run up to the roof of the building. But the perpetrators are gone. After the backup officers leave, I walk up Avenue B and take my dinner break at Lamb's Chinese Restaurant near the corner of 13th Street. Lambs was owned by a friendly immigrant family, and behind the counter in the kitchen, they had all types of police memorabilia and dozens of collar brass attached to the wall. Collar brass are the identifying metal pins that a cop puts on his collar to signify what precinct or unit they are assigned to. All the training unit cops had PBMS, or Patrol Borough Manhattan South, on our collars. The hundreds of cops that had gone through the six months of training in Alphabet City, liked Lamb so much, they would go back 
and give him copies of their new collar brass of the precinct that they were eventually assigned to after the training. As I sat there eating my lo mein, thinking about what the older Ninth Precinct cops had told me, and the bottles flying off the roof at me, I thought, what the hell am I doing here? But then a bunch of my fellow rookies like Denise Trocchio, John the Hammer Rodriguez, Larry McDonald, and Sugar Cane came into the restaurant. And Lamb started yelling, 1063, 1063. That's the police code for being out of service for the meal break. I knew I wasn't alone out there, and this was going to be a wild ride. Twenty years earlier, Greg and Rocco are in high school in two of the outer boroughs of New York City. Greg comes from a hard-working immigrant family from the West Indies, who first lived in the Bronx and then settled in Queens. Rocco's family was from the working-class borough of Staten Island. The residents of these boroughs were the -the behind-the-scenes people that enabled New York City to be the greatest city in the world. Without them, there would be no Broadway, no Wall Street, no museums. The waiters, the cab drivers, the secretaries, maintenance workers, firefighters and cops, etc., etc., all made the city run. They were just as important New Yorkers as any of the famous actors, politicians, musicians, and business titans were. While in school, Greg is a serious but quiet student. As a senior, he meets Jackie, who is a freshman. They become high school sweethearts. Two boroughs away in Staten Island, Rocco, who is the New York City high school and East Coast champion in the shot put, meets Adelaide, and they also become high school sweethearts. Eventually, both couples are talking of marriage. Rocco, after attending Iona College on a track and field scholarship, drops out to become a police trainee. At the same time, Greg is also a police trainee. It isn't long before both Greg and Rocco are saying goodbye to Jackie and Adelaide and heading to boot camp. They were going to be Marines and would soon both be in Vietnam. Months later, after being involved in some serious but smaller-scale skirmishes, Rocco was in the middle of a battle that had 500 enemy soldiers attacking approximately 90 Marines. It went all night, and in the morning, many of Rocco's fellow Marines were dead or wounded. Rocco's superiors put him in for recognition of his actions during that horrible night. A few miles away, Greg is involved in a battle that winds up earning him the Bronze Star for his actions. The second battle Greg is involved in is even worse than the first. This is the proclamation for his actions in that one. The President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star to Corporal Gregory P. Foster, United States Marine Corps, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action while serving as a machine gunner with Company G, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, 3rd Marine Division, in connection with combat operations against the enemy. On March 23, 1969, a reconnaissance team from the 1st Platoon of Company G was heavily engaged in combat with a large enemy force in the northern sector of I-Corps 
tactical zone. Dispatched as a member of a reaction force, Corporal Foster arrived at the beleaguered Marine's position and was subsequently informed that the unit had sustained four casualties. Alertly observing that two of the wounded Marines had been evacuated to safety, while two other Marines were still lying in the open, dangerously exposed to the intense hostile fire, Corporal Foster unhesitatingly rushed across 40 meters of fire-swept terrain and commenced delivering accurate M16 rifle fire at the enemy. Undaunted by the hostile rounds impacting near him, he resolutely maintained his position while two of his companions began moving the casualties to safety and providing outstanding covering fire until his weapon temporarily malfunctioned. Fearlessly moving to another position, Corporal Foster picked up a wounded Marine's M16 rifle and firing at the hostile unit enabled his comrades to evacuate the casualties to friendly lines. His bold initiative, timely actions, and sincere concern for the welfare of his fellow man inspired all who observed him and were instrumental in saving the lives of two Marines. By his courage, aggressive determination, and unswerving devotion to duty in the face of extreme personal danger, Corporal Foster contributed significantly to the defeat of the enemy force and upheld the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and of the United States Naval Service. Greg Foster was also awarded the Purple Heart for being wounded in this battle. Upon arriving home from the war, both Greg and Rocco married Jackie in Adelaide. Greg was a proud new father to Gregory Jr., and Rocco and Adelaide bought a small house for themselves. Rocco and Greg still didn't know each other, but they both entered the police academy, and upon graduation were assigned to the 9th Precinct. Both cops were rookies, and were being assigned to footposts or fill-in spots in the patrol cars. Eventually, they wound up being assigned with each other one time. They got along well and respected one another. Greg and Rocco eventually approached Sergeant Reddy of the neighborhood police team and told the half-truth of a story that they had both served in Vietnam together and wanted to be partners in the team. They had served in Vietnam at the same time, but were in different units and had never met. The neighborhood police team was comprised of cops that walked footposts or beats in the same area every day. The purpose was so that the community got to know their police officers, and the cops got to know the residents, the good ones and the bad. After establishing a good rapport with the neighborhood, Greg and Rocco start making arrests. They're helping out citizens in need, giving breaks where breaks can be given, and arresting criminals when that was needed. Greg would also play basketball with the kids in the neighborhood, and Rocco on one occasion paid for a methadone clinic treatment for a drug addict who was a former Marine and fellow Vietnam vet. Things were going well for the partners. Greg had a new daughter and was taking classes at John Jay College. Rocco was saying that he wanted to eventually become a detective. On January 27, 1972, 
Greg and Rocco were working a 4 by 12 shift and were walking their beat. They responded to a call at 632 East 11th Street. The sector car arrived after Greg and Rocco had handled the call for assistance. Officers Dom Vetrano and Danny Brennan asked Greg and Rocco if they needed a ride back to the precinct. They declined, saying that they would take a slow walk back. As Greg and Rocco walked to the corner of East 11th Street and Avenue B, three or four men walked past them, heading east on 11th Street. Without any words or warning, the men turned and shot Greg and Rocco in the back multiple times. As Greg and Rocco fell to the sidewalk, the cowards shot them again as they were lying on the ground. One of the murderers took Rocco's gun and shot him again. Another coward then shot Greg in the face, in both eyes, as he looked up at him. Witnesses said they ran to a getaway car, but one remained behind, dancing while shooting in the air. He then ran off into the night before any responding cops arrived. Dom Vetrano, Danny Brennan, Jimmy Leedy, Bill Grasso, and many other 9th Precinct cops arrived after the call came in for the 1013. That's the emergency code for police officer needs emergency assistance. They were horrified by what they saw. They immediately carried Greg and Rocco to their patrol cars and raced them to Bellevue Hospital. Rocco's legs were hanging out of the patrol car's rear doors, but they held on to him the whole way up First Avenue. Dom Vetrano stayed to guard the scene. There were snow flurries, and Dom looked at the snow hitting the ground. Greg and Rocco's blood was still all over the sidewalks. The contrast of the blood and the peaceful snowfall together seemed surreal and horrifying at the same time. At Bellevue, the doctors were working hard on the partners. The night precinct cops that were present were in shock. Back in the neighborhood, Vinny Diadamo and his partner found the getaway car on 14th Street. The perpetrators had ditched it and jumped on the subway to escape. Local cops from the Bronx and Staten Island were now racing Jackie and Adelaide to Bellevue. Back in the 9th Precinct, the police chaplain, Monsignor Dunn, was saying the rosary with the cops in the 9th. In Bellevue, a big boss in the police department was overheard asking the commissioner. Maybe they were on the take. That's why this happened. Jimmy Leedy overheard this and had to control himself from punching that asshole right in the face. In the waiting room, Jackie saw Adelaide, and they spoke briefly. Both Adelaide and Jackie were in shock. Eventually, Greg was pronounced dead. He had no chance, being shot in the face multiple times. Rocco was fighting for his life, but he didn't wind up making it either. Some of the cops that were at Bellevue remember hearing Adelaide screaming and seeing her running from wall to wall in the small hospital room. She wouldn't accept that Rocco was gone. Jackie was only 20 years old and a widow with two kids. Adelaide was only 22 or 23. Back at the scene, evidence was found that tied a group of radical political militants to the assassinations. 
These people were members of a group that had done dozens of armed robberies, shootings, murders, and the hijacking of a Delta passenger jet. Why they had targeted the two B-cops as time went on became clear to most common-sense thinking people. It was because Greg Foster and Rocco Laurie were cops, they were partners, and they were friends. They chose and volunteered to work together. That didn't fit the world that these radical cowards wanted to create. To them, America was an evil place, and the police also represented that evil, especially a white cop and a black cop working together. These hateful creatures couldn't let that be seen in their imagined utopian society. It didn't fit their narrative. Some of the suspects later on were killed in shootouts with the police in New York and different cities. In an act of great karma, one of the members of this craven radical militant group, while in a shootout with the St. Louis police, was using Rocco Lori's gun that had been stolen from Rocco's holster. He accidentally shot and killed his fellow criminal, who was also a possible suspect in the murders. After learning about Foster and Laurie and their heroism in the war, it's safe to say that if these cowards had approached them from the front, the story would have a totally different ending. Greg Foster and Rocco Laurie's funerals were held on the same day. Greg Foster's in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and Rocco Laurie's in the church where he and Adelaide were married in Staten Island. 60,000 people, including cops from all over the country, attended both funerals. Politicians and everyday citizens also attended. The city was outraged.
Some kids on Foster and Lori's beat, who called Greg Mr. Cool, had made their way up to the wake for Foster in the Bronx. They left a letter that was later printed in all the city's newspapers. It read like this. In memory of Gregory Foster, Mr. Cool to us. Mr. Cool, if I ever have the temptation of getting into trouble, I'll close my eyes and I'll believe I see you walking down the ave. Cool as always, going into our clubhouse and asking us, are you keeping cool, kids? I will always remember when we played basketball with you and when we played baseball in the summer in 12th Street Park. I still have my glove and I remember you use it to pitch part of one game. Every time you hear about some kids in trouble, you used to look for us and make sure we didn't have any part of it. I will always remember your last words to us. Keep out of trouble. Hey guys, stay cool. We know that you are still with us walking down the Ave and keeping us cool. We'll miss you, but we won't ever forget about you because we are sure you will be beside us. From now on, all the other cops will be Mr. Cool to us, but none as cool as you. Signed, Jose Figueroa, David Carrion, Ruben Colon, Raul Rosario, George Rivera, Jose Leon, Eggy Torres, Johnny Perez, Eddie Bora, Carlos Rivera, and Miguel Blasco. Letters of condolence came from all over the country for Jackie Foster and Adelaide Laurie, including the President of the United States. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, myself and my partner, Joe Sinclair, both of us coincidentally, like Greg and Rocco, grew up in Queens and Staten Island. We were now members of the Community Police on Patrol Unit of the 9th Precinct, the newest version of the neighborhood police team. We walked the same exact beats as Foster and Laurie. We walked our beats just like they did. We were friendly with the kids and the regular folks, gave breaks when we could, and locked up many violent and career criminals. Those were some of the best days I had on the job. And there were many days that I thought about Foster and Laurie while standing on that same corner. January 27th, 2022, is the 50th anniversary of the cowardly killings of Foster and Laurie. Many of us who worked in the 9th Precinct, and several of the cops who work with Greg and Rocco, will be present at the 9th Precinct on the 27th to honor and remember these two great men. Jackie has sadly since passed away. Adelaide still lives in the same house that her and Rocco bought together. Neither of them ever remarried. Police officer Gregory Foster III is now assigned to the 9th Precinct and was assigned his grandfather's shield. This has been Perpetrator, episode number 6, Mr. Cool and The Rock. <laughs> <laughs>